Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Three things uh, to, to be thinking about uh, as you listen to uh, Gladys Aylward's story. And I have to have a disclaimer uh, that I did not time this at all. So I may get through half of this or I may like finish in 30 minutes. Uh, so we'll just see, see where it goes. But three things to be uh, listening for is the role of prayer uh, in Gladys Aylward's life. Um, at many turns in her life, uh, she would be praying for something uh, to get over an obstacle or a challenge that she had. And God provided for that in many unique ways. Uh, and we also obviously should be praying like that um, in our lives. You'll see Gladys steps out of her comfort zone uh, time and time again. She's already uh, out of her comfort zone. Then like her kind of comfort zone moves to where she's at. So then she steps out again uh, and again, uh, stepping out in faith, something that we can be doing as well. And you'll see that she goes through several hardships and she shows great endurance as she goes through um, those hardships. So many of us uh, face hardships of various types, um, of maybe not like, like hers, um, but we can still uh, look to her and see how she endured while, while resting in, in Christ. Gladys Aylward, oh, click here. Uh, Gladys Aylward was born in 1902 in England, uh, in Edmonton, which is in northern northern England. Uh, she came from a humble background uh, early on in her early teens, uh, started working as a as a housemaid, um, and that was basically just her just her occupation. That's how she was she was making money. Um, wasn't great in school or anything like that. Um, she died in 1970, uh, so lived 68 years. So there's actually a couple uh, recordings. Uh, audio recordings um, of Gladys Aylward. So uh, right, right now I'm going to share a short video. It's her giving her testimony of how she came to know Jesus Christ. It's just going to be audio. Uh, there's no video to it, but I figure uh, why not let her tell her how she came to know the Lord instead of me telling you about it. So it's about seven minutes and uh, she's got a, a very distinct, uh, very distinct British, British accent. You guys want to go ahead and, and play that? The tenth verse of the third of Malachi. The great over and above all one, Jehovah, who controlleth the hosts, leans, saying, If you will bring into my storehouse your completed tithe, that my family may be sustained, then you can prove me. And see if I will not open wide windows in heaven, pouring out blessings so many, you will never be able to use them all. If you will bring, says God, into my storehouse, your completed cup, and you will find, as I have found, that your completed tithe as mine is this. This is Gladys L. The completed task, Master. All I possess, all I have, my head, my heart, my feet, my hands, that that is me, my completed task. And when God asks us to do something, he doesn't ask for one hand or one foot or even one day. He asks for the complete you. 
exactly 36 years ago. I went uh, as a girl in my 20s and I really and truly believed that God told me to go. I was saved, not in my home, I'm terribly sorry to have to say, but after I'd left my home and gone up to work in London and uh, I was called in to a church one night by a group of young people who were standing outside that church door. And I that night sat in that church and for the first time in my life realized that Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, had died for Gladys Edge. It shook me, it moved me, and it was going to alter my whole life. That next year, I floated around, and before I had joined a church, really knew how to read the Bible, or understand very much of prayer in any what I call concrete way, he called me as a child. Why he called me, I don't know. I only know he did. I was reading one day a periodical, and in it was an article on China that somebody had written because they had come into the news just a few uh, weeks or days previous the fact that the first aeroplane had flown over China. And the article pointed out that Western civilization was going in at a great rate to this great land, and yet there must be thousands, it may even go into millions, of people in China who had never heard the gospel. Uh, and so I felt that somebody ought to be doing something. Well, what the churches, weren't the Bibles, couldn't they read them? When I discovered the weren't, well, then somebody ought to be going and telling them. And I now believe that this is my job to see that at least one person went to China for Jesus Christ. And so for that next year and two months, every time I went out, I called on somebody, either a relation or a friend or somebody I knew, and later on people who I didn't know but whose names I saw in the paper, uh, with this one idea that I could persuade them that they were the very person who should be going to China for Christ. Well, I'm terribly sorry. Not one of them even took me in it. My last try was my own drunk. I went home. I caught him in the kitchen and I proceeded to tell him all that was in my mouth. And he laughed and he laughed and he thought it was the biggest joke he'd ever heard. And he said, I don't know what you're worrying about them Chinese for. Do you know anything about them? No. Nope. Know where China is? No. Nope. Been in reading any books about China? No. Nope. Well, that's a queer thing, isn't it? Well, what are you worrying about them for? Because they do not know Jesus Christ. And I feel they should. You wouldn't go? What, me? Oh, oh no. <laughs> I'm not interested. And uh, he made a run from the kitchen where we were standing. He had already gone out from the door when he turned back and very boy-like put his head round the door and this is what he said. If you really believe somebody ought to be going, why don't you go yourself? Bang went the door, and away he got. 
understood. I don't know how long. It couldn't be me. Why, I've never done anything really sensible. And, well, I wasn't educated. I haven't any money. And, uh, I wouldn't know how to begin. I couldn't... I didn't know about sermons. I don't know anything about church. Eventually, I just made God's two promises. The first, Dear Lord Jesus, if you will open the way and show me how, I will go myself. The second, I will never again ask anyone to do something that I believe you are asking me, the person Gladys Aylward, to do. The first promise I kept uh, within the next uh, year and a half by buying for myself a third-class ticket on the Trans-Siberian Railway, packing the suitcase and going. Friend, I have not done what I wanted to. I have not eaten what I wanted or worn what I would have chosen. I have not lived in a house that I would have ever looked at twice. I longed as a husband and baby and security and love, and he didn't give it. He left me alone for 17 years with one book, a Chinese Bible. That's how I know it. And no other. I don't know anything about your latest novels, pictures, theatres. I live in a rather out-of-dated world. And I suppose you say, well, it's awful miserable, isn't it? Friend, I've been one of the happiest women that have ever stepped in, sir. Because that's what God promised. The heavens opening and the blessings tumbling up. Gladys Aylward uh, wrote a book uh, called The Little Woman, um, partially because she was five foot tall uh, in stature, um, and then also just coming from humble beginnings, uh, when she, you know, as you, as you could hear, she's going around telling people about China, hey, you guys need to go to China, somebody needs to go, somebody needs to go, and finally her brother says, you go to China. Um, and even though she was not well-educated, um, did not have the means at all to get there, came from a very uh, poor family, uh, she's like, that's what God wants me to do, and there's lost people there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. So she signed up for uh, China Inland Mission for a mission school that was going on in England. It was a three-month program uh, to prepare, um, prepare the Christians to go over uh, as missionaries. She was in that program, and she was not picking up the language at all. And her teachers were basically giving her failing marks and says, you know, we applaud you for your zeal, um, but... You're, you can't make it uh, as, a, as a missionary in China, you know, so you're, you're, you're cut from the program. Um, she was devastated, um, still, had a, still had a heart for China, um, but she didn't have a way of getting there. So she started working again uh, as a housemaid for uh, two Christian missionaries who had been over in China before. Um, and they saw her and her gifts uh, for ministry, and they encouraged her to start working as a, as a rescue sister in in London, we would go to port cities uh, where uh, women who would come from the villages uh, 
ended up there and uh, ended up on the street and in prostitution and other, uh, other, other things they weren't supposed to be doing. Um, she would go out, meet with them, uh, find a place for them and get them back uh, to the villages and, and share the gospel with them as well. Uh, she had very fruitful ministry um, there, but uh, she still felt like she still, still felt this burden for, for China. Um, and so she went back to working as a housemaid. Uh, she decided she was just going to save up her own money. If nobody was going to send her, uh, over there, she couldn't go with any organization. She was just going to buy a ticket herself and go to, go to China. Uh, so she went back to working as a housemaid, uh, first day on the job. She went to, um, a travel, travel center and, uh, said, how much is it for a, a ticket to China? Um, and for a boat ticket, it was, uh, 90 pounds. Uh, and she was shocked by that, and she said, is, "That's so expensive. Is there any easy? Is there any cheaper way of getting there?" So, well, you could take a take a train. It's a 14-day train ride uh, across the uh, across Siberia, um, and that'll be about 45 pounds. And she said, "Well, that's, that's still a lot, but that's half the price." Uh, and so she emptied her pockets and had like a few shillings and said, "This is my my down payment." And they said, "We don't we don't do down payments on on tickets." She's like, "No, you just you just take this, and I'll come uh, every week." And as she gets more money, she just kept leaving the money uh, at, uh, with the travel center. And uh, finally, she saved up enough um, to go uh, on, this, on this trip. Uh, you can kind of see here the uh, route that the Trans-Siberian uh, Railroad would take at the time. The, uh, on the far left is where she started in England. And then she's trying to end up all the way over into the red on the, uh, on the far right. The problem at the time, and the, uh, the travel agent told her about this, is there was fighting going on on the border between Russia and, and China. And so when she got up uh, to the kind of the far right where the blue's at, there's a city up there called Cheetah, um, and she got to, to Cheetah. She, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So when she was on the, when she, she got on the train and she was there while she was still in Europe, uh, there was a, a Danish couple that had just attended this uh, Christian conference in, uh, in England. And they were excited to sit across from this real life missionary because they had not met a real life missionary before. And they were very inspired um, by this young uh, petite woman's uh, heart uh, to go to China with basically nothing in her, in her hand. She had enough food to make it the 14 days of boiled eggs and bread. And she brought a, a pot with her to, uh, to boil and make her tea because she was a proper uh, British woman. Um, but beyond that, uh, she didn't have any money, anything else to pro- provide for herself. Um, and so the woman, the Danish woman, uh, asked for her name. And uh, she said that she was going to pray for her every day for the rest of her life, even if she never met her. So they exchanged Bibles and uh, wrote their name in each other's, each other's Bible. And uh, so she continued to, to pray for her uh, the rest of her life, uh, apparently. And they gave her a, uh, a one-pound uh, coin, which uh, to her was worth well more than anything she could have had, had with her. And that one pound is going to come into, into play here later. So she gets to Cheetah uh, in Russia after being on the train for... Uh, many days, almost almost two weeks, and as she gets over there, everybody's speaking Russian. She doesn't speak a, a lick of Russian, and uh, she's starting to kind of understand. Everyone's getting off the train at each stop, and finally she gets to, to Cheetah, and she's the last person on the train. And they're telling, like, she can tell they're motioning that she has to get off. And she's like. I'm not getting off in Russia. I need to get off in, in China. This is obviously not China. Um, but she started to understand that there was um, the skirmishes and the, the battles going on there. So the train was not going to be able to go any further. But she refused to get off the train. And they, they're like, 
fine. So the train started going on. She's the only person. And the train gets up basically just to take the wounded and the dead uh, of the soldiers back. And so she's now gone uh, well past Cheetah. And the train just stops there in the middle of the tracks. It's not going anywhere. So finally they force her off the train. And she has to walk her way back in the middle of the night uh, back to Cheetah uh, in, the, in the cold. And when, they, when she gets there, uh, they treat her as uh, basically an illegal, an illegal alien uh, coming in there. Uh, they took her, took her passport. And uh, on her passport, they could see that it said missionary. And their, uh, their English was not very good. They saw the missionary. And they thought it had something to do with machinery. Um, so missionary, machinery. And uh, in this young, budding uh, communist uh, nation, they were excited to have somebody who knew how to, uh, how to run machines. And uh, so they were showing her around town and saying, hey, you need to stay here in, Ru- in Russia and uh, be, uh, be a machinist for us. And she's like, I'm not a machinist. I'm a missionary. And um, they still wanted this foreigner, foreigner there. And um, when they realized that she wasn't going to be staying, staying there, uh, they basically held her, held her captive. And this one woman came to her in the middle of the night and says, you have to get out of here now uh, in whatever way that you can because you're going to be stuck here um, forever. I've seen people basically stuck here as, as slaves. She was scared stiff. Um, in the middle of the night, that woman was able to let her out and she ran, uh, Gladys ran and found uh, a Japanese um, boat. Um, at this point, she got, she'd gotten from Cheetah to Vladivostok, which is uh, your far right in the blue. She ended up taking another train at this point. And um, so this, uh, this Japanese uh, captain um, said, I can, I can take you to Japan, Japan, but you have to be my, be my prisoner, um, which is the Japanese kind man's way of getting around um, taking in a foreigner into Japan without like a visa. If he took her as a prisoner, he, uh, she could go there. So she was getting ready to get on the boat and the Russian soldiers uh, had been looking for her and saw her and they went running after her and they're like grabbing onto her as she's trying to get on to this bolt, uh, boat. And so she reached in for that one pound that she had received from the Danish woman and uh, basically threw it at them and said, here, you know, take this. And they were excited for that. So they let go of her and, and took the pound and she was able to get on, get on the boat. And they went sailing for Japan, which is obviously not China for those of you who are, are following. She's trying to get to China. So now she's in Japan um, and uh, she, they take her to a, to a mission center there in Japan who they're able to pay for her to get uh, to China to uh, Tianjin, uh, which if you're listening last week, uh, Mark Wickersham talked about uh, Eric Little, rhymes with fiddle, um, who was serving in uh, Tianjin. So she arrives in Tianjin, which is uh, far right near, near Beijing with the, uh, with the red up there. Um, and then from there, she takes a uh, mule ride to get from that Beijing area down to that red mark there, which is a uh, uh, Yangcheng in uh, Shanxi province, where Jeannie Lawson is, uh, is waiting for her. Jeannie Lawson is somebody that uh, Gladys overheard someone talking about at church in England. It was this elderly woman uh, whose husband had passed away, and she had been serving in China for many, many years um, and had been praying for uh, a young woman to come and to, to take over. And uh, when Gladys had heard that in England, she's like, I'm a young woman and I want to go to China. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll go over there. And so she had written to Jeannie um, saying, hey, you know, can I, can I come and work with you? 
And Jeannie said, if you can get here, you know, great. Um, so she takes this long uh, mule ride. If you guys want to go ahead and get that, that DVD uh, ready uh, to go. They made a movie about Gladys Aylward um, called The Inn of the Sixth Happiness, and we'll talk about that in just a, just a minute. Um, but this movie came out in 1958, and it was an uh, Academy Award nominee. Um, the lady who, who plays here, I forget her name, uh, something Berg... Ber- Ingrid Bergman, okay, I guess she was famous, I don't know. But anyway, she's this tall, uh, tall, beautiful uh, woman, and uh, Gladys was like, I was not this tall, you know, lady here, but... Anyways, this right here is her uh, arriving in Mule at this uh, end of the sixth happiness uh, with, um, with Jeannie Lawson. Wang Chang. Miss Lawson, very nice. Are you Mrs. Lawson? Yes. You're Gladys Aylward. Good for you. I didn't think you'd make it. Get down, girl. You're home. (laughs) Come in and see our grubby palace. Oh, don't get too discouraged. We'll fix it up. Isn't it very big? That's why I bought it. It's an old inn. We are going to reopen it. You and I and young my cook. (laughs) That gave you a joke, didn't it? You didn't come out here to be an innkeeper. You came out to be a missionary and teach the word. Well, didn't you? You know, Gladys, I've never been this far north in China before. Very few missionaries have. Oh, there are a few in Chuchao, Tianjin, the big cities. But there's never been one in Wang Cheng before. Nor any white person, chances are. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye, thank you. Now, people here call men in the next village foreigners and suspect them. So why should they listen to us? But then how do you hope to reach them? We're after something bigger. The mule trains pass through here. They stay the night at the inns and then go on their way. These muleteers are the newspapers of North China. If we can make one of them listen to us and believe... We've reached more people than there are in Wang Cheng. Come on in. It's even worse inside. 
Why would they stay at our inn? Because we're going to charge them what the others do for food and lodging and offer something the others don't. First, no bugs. Second, stories, which the Chinese love, free with their dinner. I've got a good one for them to listen to and repeat. Once upon a time, in a little town called Bethlehem, a baby was born. Oh, it's a wonderful idea. Well, the mission center at Shung Cheng put up the money, but they weren't that enthusiastic. Come along in here. Now, there's Yang, my cook. Yang, oh. this is Miss Gladys, who's going to be our new helper. Yang's been with me 20 years, and in case you should think our work's easy, he still isn't a Christian. Ah. <laughs> He stays with me because he thinks foreigners are funny. <laughs> now come and see the rest. Oh, why is it built this way? Oh, it's a gun. It's heated from underneath, like an oven. A can? What is a can for? A community bed. You'll find them in every inn in North China. We've got lots of rooms, but when winter comes, this is the body you'll be in. You mean together? 30, 40, 50 at a time, all fully clothed and ignoring each other. It gets cold here, you'll find out. Miss Larson, I go shop now. Why not go with him? Might as well see what you let yourself in for. She go like that? Oh, I'll get her some proper things. I wait for you outside courtyard. The merchants will start raising their prices on us if they see you in those clothes. They'll take you for a rich foreigner. Rich? <laughs> in these? <laughs> the people as poor as they are, yes. My dear girl, you're in China now. Yes. Yes, I know. Oh, my, you look like a Chinese woman. We go now. That's good, thank you. Uh, so uh, there's several things that are accurate about this and several things that they took uh, some liberties with. So first of all, uh, the name of the inn is not actually the inn of the sixth happiness. I have no idea why Hollywood did, did this, but the name is the, uh, the inn of the eight happinesses. Uh, so I guess they thought it would, would sound, sound better. Um, and also, uh, Jeannie Lawson... So after Gladys had been traveling for about a month, uh, after all these hardships, you know, nearly dying, being in, in captivity and going over boat and land and, you know, and, and quite hungry, she arrives there uh, after riding on this mule for several days. She said it was extremely uncomfortable. She was so happy to get off of it, you know, finally here uh, to see, you know, Jeannie Lawson, the one that she'd been waiting to see. And uh, she got off her mule and Jeannie looked up and she's like, who are you? And uh, she's like, I'm, I'm Gladys Alward. And she was like, well, are you going to come in? Like, she was just, like, very stone cold and, uh, and then brought her in. And, uh, and Glass just walked into the room. And this, this looked much nicer than apparently it actually was inside of the inn because Jeannie hadn't really done much to, uh, to fix it up. And, uh, and so Glass finally just kind of asked, like, where should I put down my stuff? She's like, you can sleep, you know, wherever you want. And it was just all, all in shambles over there. And so it was, it was a rough night for her after uh, arriving there. But they did succeed with this uh, business as mission model that uh, Jeannie had of opening up this, opening up this inn. Uh, they were able to get very cheap rent on it because the locals thought it was, it was uh, inhabited by, uh, by devils. It was like haunted. And so they, they were able to get it for 30 cents rent uh, a year. For the, for the entire year, it was 30, 30 cents. 
minutes. Um, so it was a good deal, um, not much overhead. And like they said, there's the muleteers. Um, it'd be you know, several mules in a line that are carrying uh, goods or people. Um, and what, uh, what Gladys would do is she struggled at first, but she went out there and did what um, uh, Jeannie told her and said, we don't have any bugs, we don't have any fleas, and we have good stories. You know, come, come inside, come inside. And they would go past her. So she finally started uh, just grabbing the first mule and, like, uh, ringing the head um, in. And so as soon as she could get the first mule in the door, all the rest of the mules then w- w- would follow. And they couldn't, once they started eating the hay, the, the guys couldn't get them to leave, and so the guys were, were stuck there. Um, and so here you have these, these two British women, you know, this very young, petite, uh, uh, she's about 30 years old, the time, and then this, uh, the elderly woman uh, ministering to 40, 50 men uh, at a time. Obviously not, not ideal, but they, they, they saw the, the need there and nobody else was doing it, and so they stepped up and, uh, and what were ministering to them. And so every day would be telling these stories um, to them, and the guys, the Chinese guys, just ate up the stories and would listen to them uh, continually. After about, and, and this whole time, uh, Gladys started getting better and better uh, at, at Chinese. And, and spoiler, spoiler alert, she gets very good uh, at Chinese, despite what the, um, the China Mission Training uh, School in, in uh, England had said. Um, and she eventually gives up her, her British um, citizenship, becomes a, a Chinese um, citizen, uh, and continually wears, even after she goes back to England, uh, the Chinese attire, just as you saw in the video, her uh, putting that putting that on so that she could be among be among the people. After about a year of that, um, uh, Jeannie uh, was uh, at some other house and she had a fall and she ended up dying uh, from that from that fall. Um, and so Gladys was there by herself. Any funding that uh, Jeannie had was was gone, and so uh, she started praying because uh, she didn't have the means to keep this keep this in open and to do it um, by her by herself. So one day, um, I forget what my next slide is. Oh, yeah, perfect. Um, so one day, the uh, the guy named the Mandarin, who is uh, basically the leader of that city, Yang Chung, um, he gets brought into her courtyard uh, on one of those uh, sedans that get carried by, by people. And so he's just like sitting on that while people carry it in. And he's, he's dressed very, very nice. And she's like, oh, no. And she's like, what did I, what did I do? Because like, he's the type of guy that says, like, off with your head, and, and your head goes rolling. Um, and she had seen some beheadings uh, there at that time. And so she was quite nervous. Um, but he had come not because she was in trouble, but there was a new edict in China that they were outlawing uh, foot binding. For hundreds and hundreds of years in China, uh, young girls, uh, when they were about two to four years of age, um, they would have their feet uh, bound up. So it would be this uh, long, uh, uh, long tape, basically, uh, that would get uh, wrapped around their foot um, so that as they grew um, in stature, their feet would not get any, any, any bigger. So basically they were being constantly um, confined because they thought that uh, small feet uh, like this on a grown woman uh, is, is beautiful. Um, and so it was extremely painful because obviously uh, our bodies are not made uh, to, be, to be done like that. If you see pictures, like their feet uh, are just all, uh, 
all, all squashed up. So uh, now, this is about uh, 1930s, uh, China has put out a, a nationwide thing that this has to be uh, abolished. However, you can't just change the mindset that this is no longer beautiful and no longer desired and no longer what your daughter needs in order to, be, to get married. So um, they would continue to do this, um, and nobody wanted to try to go and enforce it. One, because a, a man could not get in there and take a look uh, at the feet like this. It was... Uh, too improper, and no woman wanted to do it because uh, all of them already had uh, bound feet um, and did not want to get involved in this controversial uh, matter. So the Mandarin came to uh, Gladys and asked if she would be the uh, foot inspector um, and said that she would uh, basically pay for all of her travels and, uh, and give, her, give her a stipend um, and basically enough for her to continue to run the inn whenever she was, whenever she was back there. Um, and she told him, she's like, I can, I can do this matter, but I must tell you, I, I came here for my God to, to share the gospel. And if I go to these far-reaching villages uh, around here, I'm going to share the gospel as I go. And he says, that's, that's fine with me. So she was basically being funded uh, by the Chinese government at that time to go and to, and to share the gospel. And so uh, she stepped out of her comfort zone uh, and did that. And she used this opportunity uh, to be the uh, foot inspector um, for, for God's glory. Um, she had a lot of favor going on with the Mandarin, who was, the, as I said, the most powerful uh, guy in the city. Um, she had seen her success um, in going and helping getting the girls to stop binding their, their feet and changing the, that mindset, uh, and her kindness uh, that she had uh, with others. Her, she had the Chinese name. Uh, I, her last name is Isle Word, obviously. Um, and so her Chinese name was Ai, Ai Weida, which means uh, the virtuous one. And so everyone saw her as the virtuous one. There was one day in uh, Yangcheng, there was a prison riot that happened, and a guy had gotten a hold of an axe and had actually attacked uh, several other prisoners uh, and killed them with, with the axe. Um, and the Mandarin actually came to Gladys and said, can, can you do something? Can, can you help us? This is beyond us, um, and he's going to kill many more. Um, stepping out of her comfort zone, uh, she went into this all-male uh, prison where the guy still had, had the axe, um, and praying, she went up to the guy and said, you know, give it, give it to me. Uh, and the guy with the axe was like, hands it, hands it over to her. And everyone's, you know, shocked at what's going on right now. Um, and uh, she brought peace um, to that to that prison at the time. And you'll see later if we get to it that she got into prison ministry as well in another city. So all this is going on. Uh, and one day she was walking back from the market um, and there was a, uh, a lady um, who had a bundle uh, of something. She couldn't tell if it was like bread or uh, whatever was in it. It was just a bundle. And she's like, you know, here, you know, you buy this. And she's like, I don't, I don't need anything. I'm good. And uh, she says, uh, and she's like, I don't have much money. I mean, I don't, I, all, I, all I have is nine pence, which is a really small amount. She's like, that's enough. And she realized it was a, it was a, a small child. It was a, a baby. Um, and Gladys was just, you know, shocked at this point. Um, and the woman's like, nine pence is enough. You, you can have the baby. And she's like, I don't want to buy a baby. Um, and she's like, well, fine, I'll just, I'll just leave it here. Um, so 
uh, Gladys ended up giving nine pence uh, to this woman she never saw again and took in uh, this, this child because it was being thrown out, basically. Um, and she, she raised this child. It was very dear to her. Um, but it became that it was not the only child that was dear to her. She very quickly uh, had about 20 children uh, that were living with her uh, at the at the inn. So she was running this inn and taking care of, as a single woman, uh, 20, 20 children. Um, obviously, uh, a lot for her to be doing, again, stepping out of her, out of her comfort zone and doing things that are beyond her own, uh, her own capability. About 1938, so she's been in uh, China for seven or eight years right now. She's already become uh, a Chinese citizen. Um, Japan uh, has started to... Uh, has started to uh, attack and take over uh, China. Um, at one point, the Japan- Japanese end up bombing uh, Yangcheng. Like, uh, planes are roaring over. She recognized the sound um, from World War I when she was in England, and she had heard the planes, but then the people in China had never heard planes going over before, so they went out all amazed hearing this, this sound, and she started getting a, a really eerie feeling, and then moments later, bombs started dropping uh, on their city. Um, hundreds and hundreds of people uh, died. Uh, the city was, was, was in ruins, many parts of it, um, and there were many orphaned, uh, orphaned children. So her number of 20 kids uh, quickly grew uh, to 40, 60, uh, and finally she had about 100 kids uh, that she was caring for. Um, she had a little bit of help um, from some of her some of her helpers there, and uh, many of the older children would help take care of the take care of the younger ones. But uh, for uh, about a year or so, she's helping take care of, of refugees. Um, she's some points taking some of these kids to to and from the villages. And as she would go to and from the villages, um, she would kind of be uh, a spy um, since she was going there. And she could see where the Japanese were in their movements. Uh, and she wouldn't be bothered. She would report back uh, to the Chinese uh, as well. In her, in her inn, which had been... Uh, it wasn't destroyed, but had been damaged quite a bit, so she's living in a different place. She would still care for the wounded soldiers and some wounded uh, citizens there in the courtyard. Um, on one occasion, uh, she was there uh, at the inn, and some soldiers came in. Uh, they were quite... Uh, they were not friendly at all, so she thought they were Japanese, but then by their, uh, by their attire, she figured out they were Chinese. And she's like, why are these Chinese soldiers being so, so, so rough with me? And the general of that, of that platoon uh, came in, was very upset with her. And she says, uh, who, who has told you uh, about me? And she's like, I have no idea who you, who you are. Nobody, I, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. She's like, who told you about me? And she keeps swearing she knows nothing about him. She's not spying for the Japanese. He leaves. She still stays under guard under, the, under these soldiers. He comes back again, still furious. I need to know. I know you've been talking about me. I know someone's talked to you. You know, who is it? Just tell me who it is. Um, She's still uh, dumbfounded. And finally, on the third or fourth time, this is after a, a day or two, she's still uh, being, being guarded. He comes in and know, he says, I know that someone has been, been talking about you because I know that you have, I've heard you speaking and I've heard others saying that you know that I'm a, that I'm a sinner. Um, and she was saying, 
I didn't need to know, you know, who you, who you are. I know that we are all, we are all sinners. Um, and, and he was talking about how all the things that she was saying about him, he, he knew to be true in his life. So she thought that she had been, she had been spying and she was basically pre, for the next hour, uh, preaches the gospel to him, opens up her Bible and explains how she knew these things, uh, about him. Um, and in that moment, um, he, he was a, a hardened general, his, uh, his uh, platoon did a lot of uh, things they were not supposed to do as they went into the cities and, and killing and stealing and stuff like that, keeping things for themselves. Um, and so he became a Christian and he asked her, so he's like, I guess I need to tell other people, my, my soldiers, that I'm a Christian now. And she says, yes, that's what, that's what we do. And so he went back that night and told them, you know, we're not doing the, uh, the, the unjustified killing and stealing anymore. We're no longer bandits. You know, we're going to do this right, you know, because I'm a follower of, of Christ. Um, the next day, uh, she didn't see him, um, and the, uh, the army had left. And she didn't see him for, for quite some time. Um, several months or, or years had passed. She was still there, uh, and one day, this beggar came through the city with the uh, refugees that were there, and uh, she got talking to him, and eventually her helper said, you don't know who this is? And uh, she's like, no, I don't know. She's like, that's the, that's the general um, who had become a Christian. She started talking with him, and uh, when he had told his soldiers uh, months before that he had become a Christian, uh, they basically tied him up, kept him captive, did not want him changing the direction of that battalion of being bandits um, and kept him captive. And as they went away to, to other cities and kept doing their, their pillaging, um, he eventually was, was left there. He had been starved. Um, and he finally found his way back here to, to Yongchung with all kinds of physical ailments and mentally not there. And um, when she realized who he was, obviously took him, took him in, uh, kind of nursed him back to health. He was there for about a year. Um, and the people there became to know him as uh, Lao Da, kind of big, big brother, um, as he helped take care of the children, helped minister um, to, to them. And uh, he eventually died after about a year because of um, the hardship that he uh, underwent from, from those soldiers. It came to the point that uh, it was no longer viable for them to, uh, to stay uh, in Yangcheng um, because uh, the city had changed hands uh, four or five times between the Chinese and the Japanese as they moved their lines. And with all these children here for their sake, she says, we, we, we cannot stay here anymore. Um, and she, uh, I can't remember if she either had gotten a letter or she had uh, believed that in Xi'an, which is about 300 miles away, there was a um, in that city, there was a mission center that would be able to take on uh, these hundred these hundred children, uh, basically an orphanage there. So, uh, she set out uh, on what ended up being a 27 day journey, journey, uh, 300 miles uh, through the mountains um, with no no mules or horses or anything, and no adults beside her herself. Um, they had a very meager amount of food uh, that they left with. Um, along the way, in some villages, they might be able to get um, some food. Um, but uh, this was probably one of the most memorable times uh, of, her, of her life as she led uh, these 100, 100 children um, starving and um, not having energy um, and f- actually finally getting to Xi'an after 27 days uh, walking there these 300 miles, uh, and Xi'an having the city gates closed to her and saying, we have, 
we already have too many refugees here. You, you cannot come in. Uh, she was heartbroken, devastated, um, realized there was a city, uh, a train ride away um, that she's able to get to, and the kids were able to end up staying, end up staying in there. It took her months uh, to recover um, from that physically, um, but after she did, she ended up... Uh, ended up being in that Xi'an area and continued to do uh, ministry, ministry there. Um, uh, I'm going to run out of time before I'm able to talk about all the things that she did there in, in Xi'an, but um, uh, she did prison ministry. Um, the, the prison leader had asked her to, to come in there and said, this prison is just an absolute mess. Um, or, I take that back. They didn't ask her. She was in Xi'an, and she overheard some other Chinese Christians talking, uh, and they were talking about how there was this group of people uh, in in Xi'an who didn't know didn't know about Jesus Christ. And she was she was kind of dumbfounded again. She was like, you know, there are many churches in Xi'an. It was a much bigger city. She said, "There's over over 100 churches here. We have colleges here. We have this college ministry going on. Like, who are these people that don't know about Jesus in Xi'an?" And they're like, "Oh, well, in the in the prison, you know, nobody's there telling the people in the prison about about Jesus." And she was like, "You know, surely somebody needs to go and tell them." And uh, kind of those those famous last words for her: "She is that she is that somebody, since nobody else would go into the prison, the all male prison." So she went there um, to, the, uh, to the prison, and she was, had a very rough go at the beginning of it, but after about a, a year, um, there was, uh, there was uh, several dozen uh, guys who had come to know Christ there, and there was an active ministry going on uh, in this prison, and the uh, leaders there praised, their, praised her for the difference that she had made uh, in this prison that was basically uh, out of control. Uh, there's another story that, that she gave um, in when she was in Xi'an. Uh, there was she wanted to go um, to the villages that were far north of where she was at, where she thought there weren't uh, as many. There was no church. There was no Christians out there, and so she was able to take a Chinese man with her who was actually a doctor. And he took off for for five days from from work and from his family. Um, end up being it was like ten or fifteen days that he left. They went out to a village, um, went and shared the gospel there, went up and shared with another, uh, another village, and they wanted to keep going north, and the person in that village says, there's, there's, no, there's nothing, there's nothing north of here, like, there's no reason to even go up there. Uh, and she's like, well, how far the next village? She's like, there is no next village, there is nothing up there uh, to go to. She's like, no, I, I still need to go. So she and the, and the guy get going. Um, they, they set up camp, uh, haven't seen anybody for a day, um, get, go up another, another day, haven't seen anyone. There's no way for them to uh, re-up their supplies, they're running out of, out of food, um, and they're exhausted. And uh, the guy's like, I think we need, we need to turn back. She's like, we need to, we need to, we need to pray. Um, and so she got down uh, in the middle of the forest there and, and prayed, and she started singing. And uh, while she was singing, uh, a person came walking up to her, which was a, uh, a, Buddhist, um, a Buddhist monk, basically, um, had heard her singing. And uh, said, she said, he said to her, he's like, you, you, you come with me. Um, and so they followed this monk, and there was this uh, monastery, like, out in the middle, absolute nowhere. And there were 500 monks uh, that, that were there uh, in this Buddhist monastery. And they, they provi- provide, provided a place for her. They all had their like, little pedestals or whatever they were on. She's like, here, this pedestal is for you. You know, you, 
they say like you uh, say something. And so she just, she shares the gospel and then uh, she's like, okay, we're going to sing a song. And they sing, like, okay, you talk again. And she just kept going on about four times, uh, again, sharing these, sharing these truths. And then she, they said, okay, you know, it's, you know, it's nighttime now. So we'll go to our, our places. They provided a room for her and uh, she was in her room and uh, she'd have these knocks on her door uh, at night, all through the night uh, in her Chinese doctor friend as well. They would come in twos because actually the males were not supposed to have contact with her as a woman, but they went ahead and did it uh, as groups of two. And they would say, you know, tell us more uh, about this way. And they'd leave, two more would come, tell us more about this way. This went on for three or four days. And um, she found out that four or five years before this, uh, one of the uh, monks had gone into one of the villages, you know, two or three days away uh, to pick up supplies. And they had received a tract um, that was telling about the gospel and about uh, the God, the God who loves. And uh, so they had been praying uh, to their gods or, or whatever for four or five years, looking and searching for the God who, the God who loves. And they said when they heard her singing um, in, the, in the forest, they thought she was singing about the God who loves. And so we're eager to bring her, bring her up there. And uh, she says, I don't know how many of them uh, became Christians, but I, I cannot doubt um, God's work in their, in their lives. Uh, fast, fast forwarding, uh, just about here to the end, that's the, the Xi'an ministry. She ministered in the churches there and uh, with uh, colleges. Um, after 17 years uh, being in China, uh, she felt led to go back to, to England. Somebody paid for her to go back to England. Um, and she was speaking at churches there, talking about China, trying to get more people to go um, to China. Um, she started a Chinese church where she was at and did um, some ministry among them there. Um, she uh, then returned. She could not go back to China because the communists uh, had completely taken over and were not allowing foreigners, especially missionaries, to be there. So she went to Hong Kong, uh, which was kind of a part of China, and uh, she started an orphanage there and then ended up in Taiwan where the losers from uh, the China war that had been going on between the nationalists and the communists. The nationalists end up in Taiwan. And so she went to, to Taiwan and uh, started an orphanage there uh, as well. And she ended up dying uh, when she was 68 uh, there in Taiwan, which is where she was, where she was buried, I believe. Um, so Gladys Aylward, uh, she, if you, I read her book. She's got just tons and tons of stories um, uh, about how God was answering in remarkable ways. You can see some instances, as I shared, of where she hits these obstacles where there is no way to go forward, uh, and she prays, and God miraculously um, provides that, that way. And you can see time and time again where she leaves her comfort zone only to find uh, that she has to leave that you know, new comfort zone. Um, and she has endured many things as well. And so... I found it encouraging uh, reading about her um, and trying to think of ways that I need to get out of my own uh, comfort zone uh, and try to live a more sold-out life like, like she did and uh, thinking of how she, she prayed in those situations uh, as we can as well. Um, our time is out, so I will pray for us. If you have any questions, uh, you can ask me afterwards. I don't know if I'll be able to answer them, but um, I'll go ahead and, uh, and pray for us. 
Father, we thank you for your work um, in Gladys Aylward and many um, likers that we are able to be encouraged by. Um, Father, we know that you are the God who never changes. We know that um, the Holy Spirit is with us now um, and empowers us to do um, things like she did and like you did um, and do them even even greater, Lord. And so I pray, Father, whether it's here in, in Evansville um, or in another land, um, in our family um, or in a neighbor's house, uh, that you would help us to step out of our comfort zone, help us to see um, where you would be wanting to, to use us. And I pray that you would help us to depend upon you all the more in prayer and help us to endure. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.